Welcome to the South Bank Think Tank, the podcast where we discuss the big questions in our society across community health, digital innovation, sustainability, education, and social justice. I'm Matt Rogers, and I'm joined today by my co-host Jody Morris. Hello. Hi. In today's episode, we are tackling a difficult topic, violence against women and girls. The death of Sarah Everard back in March 2021 has brought issues surrounding violence against women to the forefront of our minds and under increased media spotlight. But to what extent is our news coverage portraying an accurate presentation of these issues? To discuss this, we're joined by two leading academics on issues of violence against women and girls, Dr. Tyrion Havard and Dr. Chris McGill. Tyrion's research specialises in coercive control and technology abuse and how this relates to female survivors of domestic abuse and girls and young women involved with gangs. She's also currently an academic fellow in Parliament. Chris McGill is a senior lecturer in criminology and leads the Crime and Justice Research Group at LSBU. Chris has a long-standing commitment to addressing all forms of violence against women and girls, especially domestic abuse and so-called honour crime. Chris is also an Ask Me Ambassador for RISE, a Brighton-based charity that helps people affected by domestic abuse. Hello, Tyrion and Chris, and many thanks for joining us on the South Bank Think Tank podcast. We are talking about issues surrounding violence against women and girls, covering some basic definitions and discussing how these issues are portrayed in the media. But before we start, we always like to ask all of our guests on the show one particular question about turning your passion or interest into your purpose. So Tyrion, let's start with you. I wondered if you could shed some light on why you chose to pursue this particular line of work. Um, I, f- I feel that um, I sort of fell into it really and it, and it presented itself to me. So um, I started working in the probation service and one of the first training courses I ever went on was to do with domestic abuse. Um, and then as a result was allocated quite a lot of known perpetrators uh, and found it really fascinating and really scary at the same time. Um, and then sort of the, the more I got the more familiar I became with the issues, the better able I was to answer questions, ask the right questions. Uh, And so before I knew it, pretty much everybody who was walking through my door was a perpetrator in some shape or form. Um, And then um, when I came to academia, I wanted to do um, a PhD and it seemed to make sense to continue with my knowledge around domestic abuse but I really wanted to see the other side of the fence really so having worked with perpetrators for so many years I was really keen to work with survivors and understand their journey and believe that my practice experience would would inform um, my thesis and and my work there Uh, and it's just gone from strength to strength really um and, you know, I'm as passionate about it now as I was 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, yeah, so it's for me, it's yeah, for me, it, it feels like it was in a, a path that was waiting for me. Amazing. So you've got the knowledge and experience from both sides, which would be great to kind of dive into this conversation. Um, Chris, the same question to you. Why did you pursue this line of work? Um my interest in this area or my passion, commitment, if you like, really goes back quite some time. Um, I first, you know, got involved in 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 research because I was working as a researcher at the time, 
Um, and rather coincidentally, I was I was working as a research fellow at London South Bank University. And we're going back a fair bit now. We're going back to the late 1990s. And this is aging me somewhat. I appreciate that. I've done lots of stuff in between times. And so at that time, I was working as a research fellow and I was working on the um, domestic abuse strand of the Home Office's Crime Reduction Programme. And this was in the late 1990s. Um, and part of that involved um, looking at how to address domestic abuse and, and to evaluate different interventions and initiatives that were running at that time around domestic abuse. So my interest really came from that initial involvement in that work. And then, you know, as my career has progressed, I've, I've been in different roles. And, and one of those roles was a principal research officer with the Crime Prosecution Service. And in that in that role, again, it was a research role, but this time for government. Um, I was really lucky because I worked very closely with a bunch of really committed and, and passionate um, people who worked in their equality and diversity unit. Um, and one of their, um, they held a portfolio for the Violence Against Women report, which was published annually by the CPS. And I got involved in working on that report. And I also did research for the CPS on topics such as honour crime and domestic abuse. So really, there's a really long standing commitment there to um, addressing violence against women and girls. And, and that has come over into my sort of life in, in academia. Um, I teach uh, the undergraduates, criminology students, uh, these topics. And, and also, you know, been working really closely with Tillian over this past couple of years around um, with that shared passion and that shared commitment um, to addressing violence against women and girls. That's really interesting, Chris. And I guess to help as a starting point, how do you define violence against women and girls? Because it sounds like it's a very broad topic. What what do you mean when you're using you know that terminology? Um, yeah, violence against women and girls is that that phrase. I, I first came across this phrase when I when I worked for government actually, so quite a number of years ago. Um, it's an umbrella term um, that captures a whole range of different forms of violence against women and girls. Um, so it would include um, domestic abuse, uh, rape, harassment, uh, forced marriage. All these acts um, fall under this umbrella term that is violence against women and girls. And it used to be violence against women. And then it became violence against women and girls when they changed, changed some definitions. So it's an interesting history around that particular phrase. Forms of violence against women and girls. Well, they are, um, it's harm that's perpetrated sometimes against men but disproportionately against women. Um, it cuts across cultures, it cuts across communities, and um, race, religion, sexuality, but it disproportionately impacts on women and girls. Yeah, and I guess where does this kind of violence take place normally? Is it something that happens on the street, in the home? Where, do, where does it occur? Um, if we think about um, different forms of violence against women and girls, um, thinking particularly about domestic abuse, um, so it, it 
happens between um, partners, but it also it can be ex-partners. So it really depends on the different the different forms of violence against women and girls. Definitely, and I guess I guess one of the things we wanted to touch on today was around the role of the media. So um, doing research for the podcast, I'm going to read a headline that I found that I thought was quite shocking. Rugby star assaults drunk teenage girl. So I, I did look quite a bit of research on this and you tend to find a little pattern where it looks like, you know, the, the man involved is normally named or given some kind of hero status and women and girls are given, you know, a job title or, you know, just called daughter or barmaid, whatever it might be. What role do you think the media has in kind of shaping perceptions on this issue? I don't know if Tyrion, you want to come in on this point. Can, can you read me that headline again? Yeah, it's rugby star assaults drunk teenage girl. Okay, so I mean, for me, that kind of really captures it really well. So the perpetrator is a star and the victims are drunk. Okay, yeah. that's, that's the message. So where where is the blame here? Clearly, the you know the perpetrator is the person who made the decision to assault the other person. Yeah. Okay. So the perpetrator is the perpetrator, and by our by our laws, should be held accountable. But the media is portraying him to be the star and her to be a drunk, and the the implication being then that because she's a drunk, she can't be trusted in terms of her evidence. She can't be believed in terms of her account, and and the the subliminal message is potentially that you know she probably deserved it anyway. Mm. Yeah, and, and the sad thing is this this type of headline seems fairly commonplace. So I mean, Chris, you said you've been working in the space since the nineties. Now, have you seen any change in the way that this kind of reporting is done or is it still the same old stuff? No, and depressingly enough, I haven't really. Um, if, if we look at women who are murdered by their partners, what we see is that, and, and you've illustrated it quite nicely there with your example, well nicely is probably not quite the right word in this particular context, but often the media will focus on the perpetrator. Quite often it will centre the perpetrator in their story. And sometimes then they just completely ignore the women victim um, entirely to the extent sometimes that they're not even named within mm. the coverage. They're not even given a name. Um, and what I often find with the media headlines, and again, you've illustrated this perfectly, is that they will feed into these sort of existing societal myths around, for example, domestic abuse. So um, she was asking for it. You know, she was drunk. For example, so you know this is this is a myth that's quite widely accepted, unbelievably, so in today's society, um, and it feeds into what what Tyrion was alluding to there. It feeds into this sort of victim blaming narrative, you know, in some way, shape, some way or other, that that woman was to blame for her own murder, and um, you know she pushed him over the edge. It's her fault. We got quite a lot of that in in the in in the pandemic when there was reporting around domestic abuse in the first lockdown. Um, it was um, it was a case. It wasn't the you know it was her fault. She pushed him over the edge. Are you talking? Are you thinking about Ruth Williams? The one. The yeah, one yeah, said. that's one example. That's a good example, Tyrion. So yeah, so you know, I think he he her partner killed her within five or seven days of lockdown and his defense was that 
uh, his mental health had suffered because of the lockdown. It had been seven days. And so he killed her and he was convicted for manslaughter of the diminished responsibilities because of his mental health. He had no history of mental health. So we've got the media coverage coupled with the sort of criminal justice response. I think, you know, they kind of feed into each other. And then there was Bashir that the, the sorry, I can go on about this for a long time, sorry. But then there was Bashir, who was the professional cricketer um, who uh, made his wife drink acid and beat her across the head with his cricket bat knowing having and she'd recently had surgery or was it waiting brain surgery so it was really you know it was it was brutal and it was uh, targeted and it was well thought through and you know he he was given a suspended sentence so didn't go to prison and the judge's comments were that because she was a middle class and educated woman she was resilient and therefore wouldn't experience the abuse in the same way and also that because um, he had said that he had uh, he'd signed a contract with Leicester, I think it was Leicester Cricket Club. Um, and if they sent him to prison, then that would impact on his career and they, you know, and that wouldn't be right. And there was a big hoo-ha in the newspapers about this. Actually, the newspapers are picking up and there, there is a, a slight shift you know, to be fair, and the newspapers picked up that there was a massive outpouring of um, of uh, opposition to, to this sentence from sort of the feminist women, violence against women girl sector, and it got quite a lot of press. And because of the press that they got, Leicester City also contacted the press and said, we've never heard of this guy. We don't know who he is. We don't know why you think he's going to come and work and play for us because we haven't even trialed him and so under the 50-day rule I think it was he was called back in into court and resentenced and then given a prison sentence but the fact that we had to go through that huge sort of clogged machine to get him into prison after something so violent I mean he was lucky he didn't kill her right just just seems, I don't know, ridiculous for the 21st century, if I'm honest. Yeah, and, and once again, I mean, you know, so I, I phrased the question, I guess, but we're, we're still talking about the man in this situation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always the man is named until the recent example of um, the tragic thing that happened to Sarah Everard. You know, mm. it's not often you would hear the woman's name or the girl's name in the media reports. Or if you did, it was four or five paragraphs, you know, on down the page. Mm. So it's really, really interesting. And I, I don't know whether social media, I mean, we're looking at obviously big media, but social media, I've noticed there seems to be more kind of push with the Say Her Name campaign and things like that. Mm. Do, do, do you think, you know, we as individuals can play a role in changing the narrative with campaigns like this, with like Say Her Name? I can take that one. I, yeah, I... I think so. Yeah, I think I think it is. It, well, everyone can and can play the play their part. Um, there's a really great organisation um, that um, that attempt that, that actually do just that, um, and they challenge the media with regards to their reporting, their reporting um, in relation to um, violence against women and girls, particularly domestic abuse. And the organisation is called um, Level Up, and they have been quite active and successful 
um, in relation to um, you know correcting um, social media um, with their campaigns. They run different campaigns around around um, challenging the media and how they report, and um, particularly in relation to um, uh, where women are murdered, murder, you know, domestic homicides. And they talk about things like how it's important that, and they, they've got guidelines for media, they've published guidelines for media, and they talk about things like how it's important that um, the media, and this includes social media, um, place responsibility on the killer, which is something I was talking a little bit about earlier, um, and that's around accountability, and they talk about how important it is that the media is accurate. So, you know, name the crime for what it is, i.e. domestic violence, you know, rather than a tragedy, rather than a horror, name it for what it is, be accurate in your reporting, it's domestic violence, call it that. They also challenge um, sort of sensationalist language, which you get a lot in, in, in these cases. And when I'm teaching um, my students about domestic abuse and domestic violence, I talk a little bit about the media and how the media tends to sensationalise these 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 crimes and, and and use sort of language that's very emotive and and use very graphic and i guess that's about dignity really and about dignity relating to to the women who who have been murdered and, and their surviving family members and i'm very careful in my teaching to not sensationalize and i make a point when i'm talking about specific cases like for example the case of um, banaz mahoud which i talk about in relation to honor killing and some research i've done there and I share the details of her case, but I'm very careful and I make a point of saying this, that I'm not dwelling on, on this on this case because I don't want to sensationalise it because that's not the purpose of why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this because I want you to know what honour crime, honor crimes and honour killings involve. So I really recommend that um, small that organisation. It's a sort of feminist organisation. It's called Level Up and they've done some fantastic work around challenging some of these narratives in the media that are feeding into um you know feeding into those myths that 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 continue to to exist in society around um you know violence against women and girls and and gender injustice which is a term that level up the organization uses I just wanted to touch on the idea of victim blaming and I was reading up about um, the case of Grace Milan who was the young girl who was murdered backpacking in New Zealand a couple of years ago and the media really focused heavily on her sexual preferences and that she was interested in BDSM and maybe she had instructed her killer to be rough with her during sex and he just really sensationalised her murder rather than focusing on her actual killing. Um, and just to bring it back to the media, obviously reporting in this way is obviously selling papers, but do you think that there is an unhealthy cultural appetite for these types of stories and why do you think that is? That, I think there's curiosity, isn't it, right? So, I mean, if, if you think, uh, if you think about popular TV dramas or things like that, they're all very often about um, very dramatic and unpleasant things. It's kind of gripping stuff, you know. Um, and I, th I think there's a lot about domestic abuse and, and actually girls in gangs that is almost unbelievable. It's so awful. So I think I think that kind of... Um, 
I think that that sort of pulls people in a little bit, you know, like maybe watching um, a psychological drama or film or something. Um, so I think I think I think I sort of get that, but I think that the media play on that and, and sort of and I agree with everything that Chris has said, but I kind of say we, what happens in domestic domestic abuse cases almost always is so dramatic that simply telling the fact is sufficient. I don't see the need to put this layer of drama and and sensationalism around it. I mean, what we had in the case of Grace Malin was a young British woman who went backpacking, trusted somebody, and he took her life. I mean, you know, I know I've been I've been backpacking. I know lots of people who go backpacking. I mean, pre-COVID, it was standard, right? You take a year out before you go to university and you go backpacking. It's shocking. It's shocking that things like that happen. But, you know, we've had a similar sort of thing in Britain where there was, I've forgotten his name now, um, but the, the estate agent Broadbent or something like that. And, you know, and he killed his partner, uh, left, gave 42 injuries, broke her eye socket, God knows how many internal injuries, left her naked and bleeding at the bottom of the stairs and then went to bed and in the morning phoned emergency services and said she's as dead as a donut, quote unquote, right? And his defence was that it was rough sex. And he, he was done for manslaughter. He wasn't even charged with murder. He was done for manslaughter and got a two-year sentence, was released within 12 months. So, you know, so there is this there is this culture as well. But the Domestic Abuse Act, which came in in April, has specifically addressed that and says that this rough sex, so-called rough sex evidence, is not a defence. So there is a shift. It's shifting. It's not shifting fast enough and it's not shifting far enough, in my view. But it does feel as if society is beginning to catch on a bit. And I think that the Sarah Everard case kind of galvanised people and brought people together in their support and condemnation of these sorts of things. That's my view. I don't know what you think, Chris. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, progress has been made. I think we can say that. I mean, we have that you mentioned the new Domestic Abuse Act there passed at the end of April. And what struck me a little bit about this Sarah Everard, Sarah Everard case was um, well, a few things struck me, but something that I thought at the time was um, speaking to people about the case, people outside of academia, just, you know, family and friends. And they, what was tripping off their tongue was this phrase, violence against women and girls. And that phrase that was tripping off their tongue was was something that I had not, I've used, I've used, I'm very familiar with that term. You know, I, I've worked in that, on the strategy, I knew the strategy, I know the term, I talked to my students about it, I'm familiar with the research, but it was interesting to hear family and friends using that phrase and understanding a little bit about what it was and I thought that's interesting that's a shift so yeah I agree Terry and I think I think progress has been made you know it's a slow slow shift but but yeah optimistically yeah a little bit yeah I guess do you think some more holistic thinking would would help around tackling this issue so like take knife crime for example where they look at like the value of education and that sort of things around the issue 
do you think taking a similar approach to domestic violence as an example would be one way to go? So not just legislation, but looking at what what can happen and what people can do to maybe, you know, um, support families, better education, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think we can sort of, I mean, there's just so much we can do with, with, with children when they're young in terms of teaching them. So, you know, I've I've got friends who really you know I've got I've 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 got friends who are very mindful male friends who are very mindful of women and space and stuff like that. But actually, they quite often walk far too close to a woman on the street because they've never been thought to think otherwise. There's nothing threatening intended in that behaviour. It's just because they've never been told not to. You know, and so there's things like that about, you know, respecting space and all of it. And this is this isn't this wouldn't just protect women and girls. This would protect everybody. This, in my mind, would be respectful to everybody. Right. And, we, you know, and, 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 and space can be a virtual space, a physical space and an emotional space. And going back to the school thing, we should be teaching girls and boys about consent. What does a consent look like? Okay, if you're a girl, you don't have to say yes. If you're a boy, you should not insist. These are these aren't difficult concept concepts to teach people, you know. And this idea that um, and this this is coming out anecdotally from schools and stuff so is is that is that girls and young women believe that if their partner assaults them or beats them, that that's a sign of how much they love them because they're jealous. And, and and that 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 needs to change now. I'd really love to get both of your opinions on the idea of normalising the perpetrator in the media. After um, the death of Sarah Everard, there was that hashtag "Not All Men," and um, because men felt like they were being bashed. And someone posted a really good analogy, which I thought explained it really well. If someone gave you a bag of Maltesers and said that one of those Maltesers was a hard, shiny ball of shit, you would be weary of all Maltesers. And I thought that's a really good way to explain it. And it made me understand it a lot better. But I wonder from both your perspectives, is there any danger in normalising the perpetrator as the everyday man, as the man next door, as you know, any guy that you might meet. And do you agree that reducing the perpetrators to every man status creates a barrier in public perception and stops us recognising traits that perpetrators share? And are there traits that we can acknowledge very obviously? So, I, so you see, the thing is, the fact of the matter is that there isn't a perpetrator profile. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly okay, it. so... You know, I, I, I mean, I was once asked to write a journal article about what does a perpetrator look like, and I just refused to do it because, I don't know, a man, a woman, a person, I don't know, tell me, I don't know, right? What's the perpetrator? I don't know, point to somebody, they could be a perpetrator or they might not be, okay? So, and you know, and similar, so I think, I think the potential, no, everybody has the potential, and I think certainly in, in, in my career and lifetime, there's been a shift of recognising that. You know, perpetrators aren't black. 
They aren't all black. They aren't all men. They aren't always poor. They don't always have a drug and alcohol problem. They can be wealthy. They can be educated. They can have important careers. They can be powerful and they can be influential. So it's kind of like, it's about, for me, it's about finding that balance between myth, myth busting about certain types and categories of people that are that are largely discriminatory and busting that myth and exposing it because you have to in my mind you have to expose it to keep people safe right because we what we you know we we know that women have difficulty coming forward and reporting the abuse and an awful lot of that is that they won't be believed well if the perpetrator is hurting you is a consultant pediatrician or a judge or in charge of the Metropolitan Police, it's going to be much more difficult to be able to come out. And so for me, there's this myth-busting thing that does have a danger, I suppose, of normalising the perpetrator. But how, how, how else can you support these people? And, you know, and given that domestic abuse and a lot of violence against women and girls is so hidden. I mean, that's my priority. But I, but I, I understand the point you're making and that the potential risk that that brings. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I guess that leads nicely to my next question, because I'd really like to focus, I guess, on, on, on the victim. So I guess thinking for the audience at home, if we're aware of an incident of domestic abuse, as an example, what can what can we do as the public to support the victim, whether it be a friend, a family member? What what advice would you give people at home? At the risk of sounding like a teacher, Matt, and telling you off, um, can you? I personally prefer the term survivor. Okay. Yeah, because survivor for me, survivor is much more much more of an empowering word. Mm -hmm. So, like victims, I think brings up the stereotype of somebody cowering in the corner who's unable to look after themselves, who's unable, you know, and is just just helpless and hopeless. And actually, what we know about survivors of domestic abuse is that they're incredibly good at managing or predicting the risk. And so, very often, mums know when abuse is coming, so they make sure their kids have have a sleepover. Mm -hmm. That's not a passive response. That's protect that actively protecting your children in in an otherwise hopeless situation really so i i i sorry i didn't mean to tell you off or anything but it's I did, I, today. this is meant to be educational so then yeah so so i think so i think first of all you know if we start looking at survivors as people who can change their lives they just need that help and i sort of and, and my thing is and i sort of um tried to use this all, all my life actually um and i learned this in the probation service when and but i i was I, I remember i don't know who quoted it or anything i don't know who i'm quoting when i say this but i remember being told bad things happen because good people do nothing and i i've taken that with me all my life now sometimes i've been situations and i haven't done something for whatever reason and you know and i've regretted that for a long time after but actually just asking are you okay can be enough because what you're doing is you're interrupting the dialogue and you're stopping so suddenly that that locked conversation between somebody who's being 
um it's it's a conversation and and there's a man and a woman and it's really intense and you don't know where it's going to go just stepping in and saying are you all right can cut that conversation and sort of almost reset the conversation and then and then the in the woman if that's who who's at the receiving end of it has a choice to say yes or no yeah and that's quite a i like the way you describe the kind of intervention because it you know i've seen it done very badly where you get angry man then go into confront man who's shouting at his female friend partner whatever it might be and that tends to escalate violence and things so i like the way it's just kind of cutting i think that's a really nice takeaway it's almost like distracting from what's going on and giving giving someone an out if they need it mm -hmm. so I think that's and, they might, really... and they might not be able to take that out they mm. might want it but not be able to take it but I think psychologically just showing that you're there and that there's someone there that's a big shift as well they're not on their own at that moment they are not on their own definitely definitely mm. it's so important so I guess um you know it's been a fascinating conversation we could we could probably carry on talking for for hours but I guess what I'd like from each of you is maybe just one key takeaway. So what should the audience go and I guess, read or watch to educate themselves? So let's all go home and do that self-education piece. Where should I where should I go looking for relevant content? I mean, Chris, you already mentioned the Level Up um, site. Is there any, anywhere else I could go to find out more? Well, it, funny, it links to the question you've just asked, actually, um, about um, the question you just asked to Terry and because I was I've been I was just thinking about um something that I do yeah, it's a voluntary rule that I have with a local Brighton based um domestic abuse charity um they help people who've been affected by domestic abuse and, and they run a scheme it's called women's aid run it as well actually it's in for rise it's called the ask ask me ambassador and that's where they train up um, members of the community to to recognise domestic abuse and to have strategies in place um, to to help that person should should it, it it you know the opportunity present itself and I think to answer your question, Matt, I think it's about um, recognising the signs of abuse, um, but it's about recognising the signs of abuse and then knowing how to support that friend or loved one who's experiencing who's experiencing the domestic abuse and sometimes and this is something I've, I've sort of reflected on through my work with rise there's a tendency sometimes and it's a perfectly natural and understandable tendency to to want to to be the rescuer to step in and say right stop or to say right you need to leave him now or to slag him off and 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 actually, you know, somebody who's in an abusive relationship, that's that's not what they need. Um, what they need is uh, really to be to be given the space to open up, should mm -hmm. they wish to, um, for someone to believe, for someone to to believe her actually. And, and, and just to maybe to organisations, Tyrion. No, but but and also sort of alongside that. Is, is often what happens that with the best will in the world, uh, people try to intervene by telling survivors what to do. Exactly. And exactly. actually that it's the choice that's important yeah. on judgment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, uh, somebody might have to stay and you don't know why they have to stay. And it makes no sense to you why they're not leaving. 
but that's the decision of the person and it can be really difficult to support someone who makes difficult decisions or stiff decisions that just don't make sense to you mm. the thing is if we make the decisions for the survivors we're doing re uh, our relationship without the violence but we're making the decisions for them and disempowering them and yes. actually what survivors need is empowerment mm -hmm. absolutely and that's difficult i mean i'm a qualified social worker and that's difficult mm -hmm. for sure for sure so what i i think going back to your question matt and definitely it's, it's about not taking away the power absolutely um is you know it's about you know learn how to recognize the signs of abuse and then find out how to support that person in in a sort of non-judgmental um, not intervening too much kind of way completely agree and i guess Tyrion, same same question for you is is there anything you'd like the audience to go and kind of follow up with following listening to this episode i think i mean i think i would sort of read more about what what domestic abuse is ex i would say go if, if you want to know more the place to focus on is what it's like to live with domestic abuse Okay, because it, it is encompassing. It is all encompassing. Okay, and in extreme circumstances, uh, survivors can't make decisions and stuff because they're so controlled. And so, and I think that's part of being able to identify it as well. You know, is if if you can, and I think if 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 you if if we sorry, I'm stuttering a lot, but um. If you can understand and empathise and try and put yourself in the shoes of a survivor, then you can un start to understand why they might be behaving in stra strange ways, in inverted commas, okay? And I think it'll help with the non-judgmental. And the more you know and understand that, the better the questions can be. So can I help you? How can I help you? Not, you know what you should do? Or do you know what I would do if I were you? Because you're not them. And if you haven't been in an abusive relationship, you're not, you're just not able to offer that advice and guidance. It's not informed. Tyrion and Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such an interesting and enlightening conversation. I do feel like there's a part two coming up because it's so interesting. I'd love to find out more about the psychology of survivors and perpetrators. So we might call on you again to watch this space. Um, but to both of you, is there anything coming up that you're both involved in? Is there any other podcasts you're involved in or events that we could get our audience to track you on? Terry and I, and, and, and Neil in events, actually must mention Neil, are, um, we have a conference coming up on the 23rd of June. And um, this is one of a series of events that Terry and I have, have been organising over the past couple of years, um, focusing around different forms of violence against women and girls. But this one um, is focusing on intersectionality and the title of the event is Dissecting Difference, Women, Violence and Intersectionality. And do you want to say a few words about our speakers, Tillian? Because I know you're very excited. I'm very excited. So we're go we've got, um, we haven't confirmed all of them yet, but the ones that we have confirmed are fabulous. Um, and so who's open, the um, the first keynote speaker is Nazir Ivzal, who, uh, OBE, 
who is probably best has done loads of stuff for violence against women and girls, but is probably best known as the prosecutor in the Rotherham uh, sex scandal with the children and the taxi drivers, the Asian taxi drivers. So he's he's um, yeah he's going to be our keynote speaker, and then Chris and I are going to be a keynote speakers at the end. So I think we've got a tough act to follow there. But um, but yeah, so that'd be really great if you could come. It's all day. Uh, and we're covering lots of different aspects of sort of what it's like to be a woman and the different types of um, violence that, 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 that women experience and how uh, class, race, disability, sexuality or whatever changes that, that experience in some way. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll make sure that our audience head your way. And if you're listening to this in the future, we'll make sure the event's recorded and put on our YouTube channel so that you can you can watch it um and so you don't miss out so once again chris and Tyrion, thank you so much you were amazing and um speak to you soon thank you thank you very much for the opportunity matt and jody so jody um we're definitely going to have to revisit this topic at some point in the future what was your big takeaway from the episode it was definitely what they both said towards the end about empowering survivors because from a personal experience I had a friend who was in a relationship with domestic violence and I went through those motions of being that friend where I'm the shoulder to cry on and then that doesn't work so then let me be the righteous friend to be like no let's pack your bags let's go and then that doesn't work and then the friend where it's like the shock tactic of he's really going to hurt you and it's going to get too serious and then that didn't work and then being the friend that's like, okay, well, I'm not going to be friends with you because I can't be your friend if you're going to stay with this guy. And then that didn't work. And then I went back to being her friend. And it was just frustrating. I'm like, what can I do to make you see the light? But what Tyrion was saying about just empowering survivors to make sure that they're aware of their options. And I guess, and taking it back to the media spin, you know, the way the media would report on cases like that, if it did, God forbid, end up in a fatal situation, it'd be like, oh, well, it couldn't have been that bad because she stayed. Or, you know, she kind of endangered her own children because she did stay. Or, you know, she brought her death on herself because she stayed. And I, it's interesting to think about who holds the responsibility in reporting. And I think the media has a way to reflect our social norms in society, but they have a responsibility to report on these things. Well, yeah, essentially just be responsible. Definitely, because I guess a journalist's role is to kind of report or describe society to itself. Right. And the Mm -hmm. way they do it often kind of masks the real truth about what's going on. And they hide behind all these headlines, which obviously sell newspapers and other things. But actually, they're not they're not really supporting victims or survivors. Sorry, as Tyrion corrected me on the episode, survivors of domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that was really interesting. and I guess one of the takeaways I'm going to take from this is kind of the bystander intervention piece as well. So if you see something on the street, you know, rather than going in and kind of adding aggression to a, you know, already kind of aggressive situation a lot of the times, just asking someone if they're okay or if they need a bit of, bit of help and giving someone that easy out. So that's something that I'm going to take away when I'm, you know, out in London on a Friday night once we get back to normal. Yeah, yeah. But also be careful not to endanger yourself. True, true. Yeah, that is a very good point. We understand some of the themes on today's episode might affect some people. So on the topic of support, we wanted to make you aware of some of the advice and support that is out there for you. 
For LSBU students, you can email us at studentwellbeing at lsbu.ac.uk. You can also make a report of any um, hate, harassment or violence that you, a friend or a family member may have suffered. To do that, you need to go to reportandsupport.lsbu.ac.uk. And obviously for the wider community, there's several um, sources of support. You can use refuge.org.uk who offer 24 hour um, support and a domestic abuse helpline. And there's also womensaid.org.uk. So until the next episode, thanks very much for your time and take care, stay safe.